0: On November 10th, this last week, there was an anniversary that went by that was unnoticed by many. On that date, back in 1483, a little baby boy was born in Eisleben, Germany. And uh, that baby's father and mother, Margaret and Hans, they walked out. The next morning, they walked out of their two-story Gothic home there. They walked about 150 yards down the road into a church of Saints Peter and Paul, and they had that little baby boy christened or or, or sprinkled. We don't call it baptism here. And since it was November 11th, and since it was the feast day of St. Martin of Tours, they called the little boy Martin. His full name was Martin Luther. And you know that Martin Luther was used by the Lord as the spark that ignited the Protestant Reformation. He was the one who prepared the way for the reformers who sought to reform the church according to the word of God. Dark shadows of grace erasing and man-made traditions had buried the go- glory of the gospel in Europe. And as the Bible began to be translated, as the gospel began to preach all across Europe, spiritual light began to dawn. And so the reformers began to take up a phrase in Latin to describe what was happening, post tenebras lux, which means after darkness light. We pick up our study in the gospel according to Luke and we need to remind ourselves of its canonical context. The Old Testament concludes with the prophecy of Malachi, Saying that the Messiah would come, but before Messiah comes, God would raise up a messenger to prepare his way. But after Malachi announced this prophecy, there was 400 years of silence. There was darkness, as it were, from heaven for 400 years in Israel. There was no prophetic word for 400 years. It was as if heaven was silent. And we know that it is darkest right before the dawn. And as we open our Bibles this morning to Luke chapter 1 verses 5 to 25, what we find is that God breaks the silence. Through one of God's messengers, he announced that the, the, announces that the long-awaited Messiah and the one who would prepare the way for Messiah is about to arrive. So I want you to think about the gospel of Luke this morning as a kind of a bridge, a bridge between the Old Testament days of promise and the New Testament days of fulfillment. And as we read Luke's gospel, you're going to have what I call biblical deja vu. Luke writes his gospel in such a way that the people that he talks about and the events that he's describing, you feel and you think to yourself, I feel like I've met this person before. I've seen this person before. I've heard this before in the Old Testament. Luke intentionally tells his gospel, the true story of Jesus, in such a way that it seamlessly joins to Israel's sacred past. One writer put it this way. Think of it like a play almost. The scenes of Luke's gospel are displayed on a stage where the scenery is familiar to anyone who knows the drama of the Old Testament. So, the reason Luke does this is simply this. Remembering what God has done in the past as recorded in the scriptures is essential for believing his promises to us in the present and that he goes about fulfilling those promises in surprising ways what we're about to read in Luke chapter 1 tells us that God's plan of redemption is about to happen the sunrise from on high the coming of messiah is about to dawn 400 years of darkness is about to be vanquished. But before Messiah comes, the messenger has to come first. That brings us to verse 5. Look at your Bibles. Verse 5. The first person we meet in verse 5 is a king without a conscience. That's point number one. A king without a conscience. Luke begins his gospel with these words. In the days of Herod, king of Judea. Luke begins by introducing us to someone called Herod, who was a king without a conscience. Last week, we saw that Dr. Luke is also a historian. It's careful. It's helpful to note. He doesn't begin his gospel with once upon a time. He gives us a historical timestamp in the days of Herod, king of Judea. Now, if you read the New Testament, there are a bunch of Herods and you you may be getting confused. So let me just clarify, who is this? Sometimes we read these historical names and we just go on. It's like, well, there's a bunch of Herods, who knows? Let me just tell you who this is, because it's important to understand the story. This is the Herod who was the patriarch there in Palestine, who ruled over Palestine for four decades. He called himself Herod the Great. He was a really humble guy. In the ancient world when the Romans took over they would establish military control and then they would basically appoint some representative in the region to rule on their behalf. And so uh, Julius Caesar appointed Herod's father to rule as governor in Judea while the Romans occupied it. And then his father made this guy Herod He made this guy, Herod, the prefect of Galilee, which is the northern part of Palestine. And eventually, this guy, Herod, was called by Rome the king of the Jews, which made the Jews angry because Herod wasn't even Jewish. This was 37 BC. During his reign for 40 years, he did a lot of things. The region became more wealthy, he did a lot of building projects. He built this fortress summer home down near the Dead Sea called Masada. Maybe you've heard of it. He also rebuilt Solomon's temple. So the temple that's described in Luke chapter 2, that was in part rebuilt by this guy, King Herod. And even though he built or rebuilt the temple, the Jews still hated him. Because he was a reminder that Gentile unbelievers were ruling over the land of Abraham. Now, Herod the Great wasn't a great guy. He was incredibly jealous. He was incredibly suspicious. His cruelty is almost beyond measure. He killed his wife. His brother-in-law was the Jewish high priest. He had him drowned. He murdered his mother-in-law. He murdered two of his sons. Caesar Augustus said this about Herod. Quote, it would be better to be Herod's pig than Herod's son because you stand a better chance of living longer. You know Herod because if you've read Matthew chapter 2, what did he do? He heard that a king was born in Bethlehem of Judea. So in order to make sure that king never threatened his throne, he had all of the Jewish males, two and under, in that region, murdered. This is Herod, king of Judea. He's a king without a conscience. Number two, verse five, we meet a couple without a child. Look at verses five to seven. We meet a couple without a child. In the days of King Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife and from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before the Lord, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. So we meet a couple, but a couple without a child. You notice that they're an elderly Jewish couple living, we know from later in chapter 1, in the hill country of Judah. Zechariah, we're told, was a priest in the division of Abijah. And what that meant was the priests had different orders. And two weeks out of the year, they would serve in Jerusalem at the temple doing a whole host of duties. His wife was also from the line of Aaron, so this was a double blessing. But notice in verse 6, notice verse 6, they were walking in obedience to God's word. Luke, Luke tells us that they were both righteous before God. They were walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. This doesn't mean that they were sinless. It just means that they trusted and obeyed God's word. But their lives weren't free from disappointment. The righteous always suffer. Look what we're told in verse 7. But they had no child Because Elizabeth was barren and they were both advanced in years. Now many of us, many of us can imagine, many of us have known. Some of us may presently know the heartbreak behind that word barren. Elizabeth was barren. She had always wanted a child, and now, given the age that she and her husband were, that dream seemed impossible. Listen to what one commentator says. In any culture, infertility is an aching disappointment, and it is an unbearable stress, but the burden cannot be compared to that born by a childless woman in ancient Hebrew culture, because barrenness was considered a disgrace, even a punishment. But brothers and sisters, Luke makes clear, this couple wasn't being punished because of some hidden sin. We're going to find as we read this story, that Elizabeth's barrenness is a part of God's good and glorious plan. Luke wants us, as we read this story, like I said earlier, to say to ourselves, I've read this story before. I've heard this story before. He has written this in such a way that you will remember other elderly, righteous, Jewish women in the story of Israel who were barren. And who God blessed. We think of Sarah and Leah and Hannah and the wife of Manoah in Judges 13. You see, remembering what God has done in the past, as recorded in the Scriptures, is essential to believing that God will fulfill His promises to us in the present, even in surprising ways. God's purposes are going to be fulfilled. And when we go through seasons of frustration and disappointment elizabeth provides us here with an example doesn't she we know the goodness of god we know that he's blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places we know that he withholds nothing no good thing from those who walk uprightly and what we see from elizabeth's example is this she she endured a lifetime almost of disappointment But she didn't wait for a child to live her life. Notice, she didn't wait for a child before she began to serve the Lord. She was busy serving the Lord and walking blamelessly in His commandments. Let me ask you, what good thing are you asking God for this morning that He has so far withheld from you? Is it a child, spouse, that dream job? Maybe it's the college application acceptance letter. What good thing have you asked from the Lord and you haven't received it? Here's another question. Will you continue to faithfully serve God even if he doesn't give it to you? Is he enough? Is having him as your portion forever enough? It's a couple without a child. And now we encounter a priest without faith. Look at verses 8 to 20. We had a king without a conscience and a couple without a child. And now we meet a priest without faith. The scene changes and now we're in Jerusalem at the temple. We find this happening in verse 8. Now while he, that is Zechariah, was serving as priest before God when his division was on duty. And according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and to burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. Now, there are many orders of priests in Israel, but not enough sacred duties at the temple for them all. So every priestly order would serve at the temple, like I said, for a two-week span. And then because there were so many priests, they would have to draw basically lots to find out what was going to be your duties for those two weeks. And so you can read about these incense offerings that are described in Exodus 30. But here's the point. The incense offering that's described here was like the the jackpot for a priest. It was such a um, unique and special offering that a priest was only allowed to offer it one time in their entire life. Now I want you to think about what that looked like. Okay, the priest. This is like this is like winning the Powerball uh, for the priest. The the people would be praying outside, and Zechariah is inside the temple in the holy place. It's, it's, the, it's the sanctuary right in front of the Holy of Holies, okay? So he's there. There's the altar of incense. that's located in the holy place right before the curtain that separates the Holy of Holies. And so this is as close as a priest could ever come To the holy presence of God. The the high priest would only go in one time a year to the Holy of Holies. So, this is the pinnacle. This is the high point of his life. Listen to this description it says this. In the afternoon sacrifice, the the incense was last and the assigned priest and two assistants would carry burning coals from the great altar into the chamber of the holy place to burn them on the incense altar. It was made of gold-plated wood. It was right in the center of the room, right in front of the veil, separating the holy of holies. And the assistants would withdraw and it would leave the priest alone in the sanctuary, and he would lay the incense on the coals, and then he would prostrate himself in prayer. And as the incense went up, it was a picture, it was a symbol of the prayers of the people outside and the priest rising up to heaven. So all this is happening, and Zechariah is praying at this holy place in this holy moment, and then verse 11 happens. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord, standing by the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard And your wife will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. Now, you can imagine the shock and the surprise from Zechariah. An angel hasn't visited God's people for 500 years. Not since when an angel appeared at the fiery furnace, as recorded in Daniel. God hasn't spoken to his people in 400 years. And now, this messenger from the Lord... The captain of his angelic army is standing before him and speaking to him. And Zechariah is petrified. That's what happens when angels show up in the Bible. Everyone is afraid. There's dread. There's fright. The angel says, don't be afraid. And then notice, here's the key word. Notice that little word, for. Don't be afraid, Zechariah. For your prayer has been heard. And your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son. You see, Zechariah and Elizabeth apparently had been praying for a child. They'd been praying for a son. Now, as a priest, he was obviously also praying for God to rescue his people, for God to deliver his people, for God to, to bring the Messiah. But as a A husband, he was also praying for God to give them a son, a miracle child. And Gabriel announces, your prayer has been heard. This miracle son will be called John, whose name means the Lord is merciful, the Lord is gracious. But this isn't going to be an ordinary little Jewish boy. Notice, he's going to be the one promised and prophesied in the Old Testament. The great prophet who would come before Messiah. Look what he says in verse 14. And you will have joy and gladness and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink. And he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. This is exactly what Malachi promised in the closing verses of your Old Testament. The last few verses of Malachi say, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers. So this prophecy is going to happen through this miracle child that's been prayed for, By Elizabeth and Zechariah. And Zechariah is finding out this is going to happen. The one who's going to prepare the way of the Lord is the one born from this barren woman and old man. Now how does Zechariah respond to this amazing good news? Look at verse 18. And Zechariah said to the angel, how shall I know this? For I'm an old man. And my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. And I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day these things take place. Notice this word. Because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. Standing in the holy place, hearing the words of the angel, finding out that his prayers had been answered and Zechariah doesn't believe. You notice later on in the story, some of you asked me this week, what's the deal? It seems like Mary asked a similar question and yet she's not she's not struck with muteness, right? What's going what's the difference? The difference is this, when Mary is told that Her child is going to be the Messiah. As a virgin, she asked the question, how's this going to happen? But what Zechariah is asking here is more, on what basis shall I know this? Zechariah is asking for more evidence. Mary assumes what the angel is telling her is going to happen. She's just wanting to know how's it going to happen. He's asking for evidence. He's asking for more evidence from the Lord. He's asking. And the other difference is they had been praying for a child. They'd been praying for a child. And he says, your prayers have answered. And he says, well, I don't know about that. Give me some more evidence. See, Zechariah is a priest without faith. And I wonder, can you relate at all to Zechariah's unbelief? You pray, you ask God for something, maybe it's something big. But If you're honest, you're doubting whether or not he'll answer. You've prayed earnestly for something, and then you hear, you see that God is going to answer your prayers. And even then, you kind of want to trust but verify. Zechariah was told that the one who was going to be born of his wife was going to be the one who Jesus calls the greatest man who ever lived. And yet Zechariah didn't believe. You see, Zechariah's name means God has remembered. But he forgot what God had done in the past through people like Abraham and Sarah. And so Zechariah failed to remember that God always remembers. He always keeps his word. How how grateful are you this morning to know that Your unbelief is not as strong as God's promises. Remembering what God has done in the past helps us to believe His promises to us in the present. So this priest without faith becomes, number four, a priest without a voice. A priest without a voice. Look at verses 21 and 23. And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out... He was unable to speak to them. And they realized that he'd seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them and remained mute. Now just picture it. Outside the temple, everybody's praying. The faithful are praying. And they're waiting for the priest to come out. Because what would happen is after the incense offering, the priest would come out. He would exit. He would be up there on the porch. They're on the steps. And he would bless them. Just as he was supposed to from Numbers chapter 6. He was supposed to pray. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord cause his face to shine upon you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. That was the priestly blessing that they were waiting for. But then he comes out and he can't speak. He's mute. He can't give the priestly blessing. But what's even more staggering, he has just heard the greatest news that Jews, faithful Jews, had been waiting to hear for millennia. The Messiah is about to arrive, and he can't tell anyone. Zechariah couldn't tell anyone. Now let me ask you a question. Christian, are you a mute witness for Jesus? We have even greater news to share than Zechariah did. But unbelief shut Zechariah's mouth. What's shutting yours? Look at verse 23. And then when his time of service, the two-week service, was ended, he went to his home. Now I want you to imagine we know from verse 60 or verse 39 they lived in the hill country so he's he's two weeks away serving he comes home he makes the long journey home uh, to his home in the the hill country and imagine that after that long commute imagine Zechariah walks through the front door and Elizabeth says honey anything interesting happened at work this week right well we know from verse 63 that they that Zechariah knew how to write We know that verse 63 tells us they had a writing tablet in their house. So I can imagine Zechariah furiously, feverishly scribbling out this astounding news something like this My dear Elizabeth, God has remembered us. God's heard our prayers. In spite of my unbelief, we're going to have a baby boy. And more than that, he'll be the prophet of the Most High God. And he's going to prepare the way for Messiah. And I wonder if these old saints who had read the scriptures over and over again. I wonder if these words came to their hearts as they reflected on what God had done for them. Who is like the Lord our God, who is seated on high, who looks far down on the heavens and the earth, who raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy up from the ash heap to make them sit with princes, who gives the barren woman home, making her the joyous mother of children. Luke introduces us to a king without a conscience, and a couple without a child, and a priest without faith, and then a priest without a voice. And he concludes by showing us a mother without disgrace. Look at this closing scene. Look at verses 24 and 25. A mother without disgrace. Look at verse 24. And after these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. You notice this striking contrast between Zechariah's unbelief and Elizabeth's, Elizabeth's faith. We're told... Before her son's even born, she's saying, the Lord's taken away my disgrace. It's a done deal. She's heard the the word through Zechariah, and she believes in her heart the Lord has taken away her disgrace, taken away her reproach. And once again, brothers and sisters, Luke is alluding to an Old Testament passage that I believe is helping Elizabeth, trust God's promise. Listen to these words. This is from Genesis 30, verse 22. This is what he did for Rachel. Remember? Then God remembered Rachel and God listened to her and opened her womb. She conceived and bore a son. And what did she say? God has taken away my reproach. That's exactly the same thing Elizabeth is quoting. God has done for me what God did for Rachel. And so her her social disgrace, her physical barrenness, all of that is really a picture also of the barrenness and the spiritual barrenness that's going on in Israel. God's going to take away her social disgrace, but God is going to do something far more through her son, John the Baptist. He's going to be the one who brings good news and joy, not only to her, but to the whole world. Because her son, her only son, is going to be the one who's going to point to the one. And he's going to say, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. John the Baptist was born out of barrenness. Jesus Christ was born of a virgin. John the Baptist was the greatest prophet before the Lord, but Jesus Christ is the promised Messiah whose kingdom has no end. Jesus Christ is the way. John the Baptist only prepared the way. John will take away Elizabeth's disgrace, but the one to whom she will point, the one to whom he will point, will take away her sins. Jesus Christ came to take away the sins of his people by bearing all of their reproach in himself on the cross. As it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell upon me. Friend, if you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, your sins are more numerous than the stars in the heavens. And your reproach is heavier than than the sea. But Jesus Christ has died and rose again so that anyone who receives Him, who turns from their sins and receives Him in the empty hands of faith, receives righteousness and holiness. In Him there is no condemnation at all. When you receive the Lord Jesus Christ... He becomes your righteousness and you receive the Father's embrace forever. Jesus said, I have come into the world as light and whoever believes in me may not remain in the darkness. Brothers and sisters, you can do something this morning that Elizabeth and Zechariah couldn't. You have the privilege To look back at the cross of Christ and the empty tomb. And remember that God keeps all of his promises. All the promises of God are yes and amen in Christ. Bearing shame and scoffing rude in my place. Condemned he stood. Sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah. What a Savior. You can remember this morning. Jesus Christ The offspring of David, crucified, risen, reigning, and returning. What is he doing right now when Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of guilt within? Upward I look and see him there who made an end of all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinless soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied. And looks on him and pardons me. You can look back at the sunrise from on high. Who came to those who sat in darkness and in the shadow of death. Brothers and sisters, Christians of all people in the world. We can remember and we know with all our hearts. That after darkness comes the light.